Chapter 3 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Chicago. Chasing a Will-o'-the-Wisp. That was on Sunday morning, 300 miles south of Chicago, and at 9.40 that night, I stepped off the New Orleans and Chicago fast mail into a new, different world. It was, I believe, the coldest night that I had ever experienced. The city was new and strange to me, and I wandered here and there for hours before I finally found my brother's address on Armour Avenue. But the wandering and anxiety mattered little, for I was in the great city where I intended beginning my career, and felt that bigger things were in store for me. The next day my brother's landlady appeared to take a good deal of interest in me and encouraged me so that I became quite confidential and told her of my ambitions for the future and that it was my intention to work, save my money and eventually become a property owner. I was rather chagrined later, however, to find that she had repeated all this to my brother and he gave me a good round scolding, accompanied by the unsolicited advice that if I would keep my mouth shut People wouldn't know I was so green. He had been travelling as a waiter on an Eastern Railroad dining car, but in a fit of independence which had always been characteristic of him, had quit, and now in midwinter was out of a job. He was not enthusiastic concerning my presence in the city, and I had found him broke, but with a lot of fine clothes and a diamond or two. Most folks from the country don't value good clothes and diamonds in the way city folk do, and I, for one, didn't think much of his finery. I was greatly disappointed, for I had anticipated that my big brother would have accumulated some property or become master of a bank account during these five or six years he had been away from home. He seemed to sense this disappointment and became more irritated at my presence and finally wrote home to my parents, who had recently moved to Kansas, charging me with the crime of being a big, awkward, ignorant kid, unsophisticated in the ways of the world, and especially of the city, that I was likely to end my career by running over a streetcar and permitting the city to irreversibly lose me, or something equally as bad. When I heard from my mother, she was worried and begged me to come home. I knew the folks at home shared my brother's opinion of me, and believed all he had told them, so I had a good laugh all to myself, in spite of the depressing effect it had on me. However, there was the reaction, and when it set in I became heartsick and discouraged, and then and there became personally acquainted with the Blues, who gave me their undivided attention for some time after that. The following Sunday I expected him to take me to church with him, but he didn't. He went alone, wearing his $5 hat, $15 made-to-measure shoes, $45 coat and vest, $11 trousers, $50 tweed overcoat, and his diamonds. I find my way to the church alone, and when I saw him sitting reservedly in an opposite pew, I felt snubbed, and my heart sank. However, only momentarily, for a new light dawned upon me, and I saw the snobbery and folly of it all, and resolved that some day I would rise head and shoulders above that foolish, four-flushing brother of mine in real and material success. I finally secured irregular employment at the Union Stockyards. The wages at that time were not the best, 
common labour a dollar fifty per day, and the hours very irregular. Some days I was called for duty at five in the morning and laid off at three in the afternoon, or called again at eight in the evening to work until nine the same evening. I soon found the mere getting of jobs to be quite easy. It was getting a desirable one that gave me trouble. However, when I first went to the yards and looked at the crowds waiting before the office in quest of employment, I must confess I felt rather discouraged. But my new surroundings and that inevitable interesting feature about these crowds with their diversity of nationalities and ambitions made me forget my own little disappointments. Most all new arrivals, whether skilled or unskilled workmen, seeking jobs in the city, find their way to the yards. Thousands of unskilled labourers are employed here, and it seems to be the mecca for the down and out, who wander thither in a last effort to obtain employment. The people with whom I stopped belong to the servant class, and live neatly in the Armour Avenue flat, the different classes of people who make up the population of a great city are segregated more by their occupations than anything else. The labourers usually live in a labourer's neighbourhood. Tradesmen find it more agreeable among their fellow workmen, and the same is true of the servants and others. I found that employment which soiled the clothes and face and hands was out of keeping among the people with whom I lived. So after trying first one job, then another, I went to Joliet, Illinois, to work out my fortune in the steel mills of that town. I was told that at that place was an excellent opportunity to learn a trade. But after getting only the very roughest kind of work to do around the mills, such as wrecking and carrying all kinds of broken iron and digging in a canal, along with a lot of jabbering foreigners whose English vocabulary consisted of but one word, their labourers number. It is needless to say that I saw little chance of learning a trade at any very early date. Payday happened every two weeks, with two weeks held back. If I quit, it would be three weeks before I could get my wages, but I was informed of a scheme by which I could get my money, by telling the foreman that I was going to leave the state. Accordingly, I approached the renowned imbecile and told him that I was going to California, and I would have to quit and would like to get my pay. Payday is every two weeks, so be sure to get back in time, he answered in that officious manner, so peculiar to foreman. I had only four dollars coming, so I quit anyway. That evening I became the recipient of the illuminating information that if I would apply at the coal chutes, I would find better employment as well as receive better wages. I sought out the fellow in charge, a big coloured man, weighing about two hundred pounds who gave me work cracking and heaving coal into the chute at a dollar fifty per twenty-five tons. Gracious, I expostulated. A man can't do all that in a day. Pooh! And he waved his big hands depreciatingly. I have heaved forty tons with small effort. I decided to go to work that day, but with many misgivings, as to the cracking and shoveling twenty-five tons of coal. The first day I managed, by dint of hard labour, to crack and heave 18 tons out of a box car, for which I received the munificent sum of $1, and the next day I fell to 16 tons, and likewise to 89 cents. The contractor who superintended the coal business bought me a drink in a nearby saloon, 
and as I drank it with a gulp, he patted me on the shoulder, saying, Now, after the third day, son, you begin to improve, and at the end of the week you can heave thirty tons a day, as easy as a clock ticking the time. I thought he was going to add that I would be shoveling forty tons like Big Jim, the fellow who gave me the job. But I cut him off by telling him that I'd resigned before I became so proficient. I had to send for more money to pay my board. My brother, being my banker, sent a statement of my account, showing that I had to date just $25, and the statement seemed to read coldly between the lines that I would soon be broke, out of a job, and what then? I felt very serious about the matter, and when I returned to Chicago, I had lost some of my confidence regarding my future. Mrs. Nelson, the landlady, boasted that her husband made $20 per week, showed me her diamonds, and spoke so very highly of my brother that I suspicioned that she admired him a great deal, and that he was in no immediate danger of losing his room, even when he was out of work and unable to meet his obligations. My next step was to let an employment agency swindle me out of two dollars. Their system was quite unique, and I presume legitimate. They persuaded the applicant to deposit three dollars as a guarantee of good faith, after which they were to find a position for him. A given percentage was also to be taken from the wages for a certain length of time. Some of these agencies may have been all right, but my old friend the hoodoo led me to the one that was an open fraud. After the person seeking employment has been sent to several places for imaginary positions that prove to be only myths, the agency offers to give back a dollar, and the disgusted applicant is usually glad to get it. I myself being one of many of these unfortunates. I then tried the newspaper ads. There is usually some particular paper in any large city that makes a speciality of want advertisements. I was told, as was necessary, to stand at the door when the paper came from the press, grab a copy, choose an ad that seemed promising, and run like wild for the address given. I had no trade, so turned to the miscellaneous column and as I had no references, I looked for a place where none were required. If the address was near, I would run as fast as the crowded street and the speed laws would permit, but always found upon arrival that someone had just either been accepted ahead of me or had been there a week, I having run down an old ad that had been permitted to run for that time. About the only difference I found between the newspapers and the employment agencies What's that? I didn't have to pay $3 for the experience. I now realized the disadvantages of being an unskilled laborer and had grown weary of chasing a will-o'-the-wisp. And one day, while talking to a small Indian-looking Negro, I remarked that I wished I could find a job in some suburb shining shoes in a barber shop or something that would take me away from Chicago and its dilly-dally jobs for a while. I know where you can get a job like that, he answered thoughtfully. Where? I asked eagerly. Why, out at Eton, he went on, a suburb about 25 miles west. A fellow wanted me to go, but I don't want to leave Chicago. I found that most of the colored people with whom I had become acquainted with, who lived in Chicago very long, were similarly reluctant about leaving. But I was ready to go anywhere so my new friend took me over to a barber supply house on Clark Street, where a man gave me the name of the barber at Eton, 
and told me to come by in the morning, and he'd give me a ticket to the place. When I got on the street again, I felt so happy and grateful to my friend for the information that I gave the little mulatto a half dollar, all the money I had with me, and I had walked for the forty blocks to my room. Here I filled my old grip, and the next morning beat it for Eton, arriving there on the first of May, and a cold, bleak spring morning it was. I found the shop without any trouble, a dingy little place with two chairs. The proprietor, a drawn, unhappy-looking creature, and a hawkish-looking German assistant, welcomed me cordially. They seemed to need company. The proprietor led me upstairs to a room that I could have free, with an oil stove and a table where I could cook, so I made arrangements to batch. I received no wages, but was allowed to retain all I made shining. I had acquired some experienced shining shoes on the streets of Empoles, with a homemade box, getting on my knees whenever I got a customer. Shining shoes is not usually considered an advanced or technical occupation requiring skill. However, if properly conducted, it can be the making of a good solicitor. While Eton was a suburb, it was also a country town, and this shop was never patronised by any of the metropolitan class who made their homes there, but principally by the country class, who do not evidence their city pride by the polish of their shoes. Few city people allow their shoes to go unpolished, and I wasn't long in finding it out. And when I did, I had something to say to the men who went by, well-dressed, but with dirty shoes. If I could argue with them into stopping, if only for a moment, I could nearly always succeed in getting them into the chair. Business, however, was dull, and I began taking jobs in the country from the farmers, working through the day and getting back to the shop for the evening. This, however, was short-lived, for I was unaccustomed to farm work since leaving home and found it extremely difficult. My first work in the country was pitching Timothy Hay side by side with a girl of sixteen, who knew how to pitch hay. I thought it would be quite romantic before I started, but before the night came I had changed my mind. The man on the wagon would drive alongside a big cock of sweet-smelling hay, and the girl would stick her fork partly to one side of the haycock and show me how to put my fork into the other. I was left-handed while she was right, and with our backs to the wagon we could make a heavy lift, and when the hay was directly overhead we'd turn and face each other, and over the load would go onto the wagon. Toward evening the loads thus balanced seemed to me as heavy as the load of Atlas bearing the air. I am sure my face disclosed the fatigue and strain under which I laboured, for it was clearly reflected in the knowing grin of my companion. I drew my pay that night on the excuse of having to get an overall suit, promising to be back at quarter to seven the next morning. Then I tried shocking oats along with a boy of about twelve, a girl of fourteen and a farmer's wife. The way those two children did work, whew! I was so glad when a shower came up about noon that I refrained from shouting with difficulty. I drew my pay this time to get some gloves and promised to be back as soon as I dried. The next morning I felt so sore and stiff as the result of my two days' experience in the harvest fields that I forgot all about my promise to return and decided to stay in Eton. 
It was in Eton that I started my first bank account. The little $20 certificate of deposit opened my mind to different things entirely. I would look at it until I had daydreams. During the three months I spent in Eden, I laid the foundation of a future. Simple as it was, it led me into channels which carried me away from my race and into a life fraught with excitement. A life that gave experiences and other things I had never dreamed of. I had started a bank account of $20 and I found myself wanting one of 30 and to my surprise the desire seemed to increase. This desire fathered my plans to become a porter on a PN car, a position I diligently sought and applied for between such odd jobs about town as mowing lawns, washing windows, scrubbing floors and a variety of others that kept me quite busy, taking the work, if I could, by contract, thus permitting me to use my own time and to work as hard as I desired to finish. I found that this plan I could make money faster and easier than by working in the country. I was finally rewarded by being given a run on a parlor car by a road that reached many summer resorts in southern Wisconsin. Here I skimped along on a run that went out every Friday and Saturday, returning on Monday morning. The regular salary was $40 per month, but as I never put in more than half the time, I barely made $20, and although I made little on the side, in the way of tips, I had to draw on the money I had saved in Eton. End of chapter 3